There are two dangers in this sermon series that I hope that we will avoid. The first danger is that you don't apply it to you based on, based on the subjects that Jesus is addressing, the scribes and the Pharisees. And the second is that you will hear these words of Jesus as harsh or vindictive, and thus you will shut your ears to the message that is there. The first, that we'll look at the subjects who Jesus is speaking to, and we'll say, well, that's not us, so that doesn't apply to me. And the second is that we will hear the words maybe and say, uh, that's a little bit too harsh, and we will not hear the words of a loving Savior. Let me address the latter first. The first phrase in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13 is the phrase, woe to you. And Christian, I feel like I've got an echo or I'm a little hot up here. If you could pull me back some. Woe to you. And then following that woe are some pretty sharp observations from Jesus. More than observations, they are, in fact, pronouncements and, and, and judgments that Jesus makes. In our world of, of a preferred God that never scolds, never disciplines, never corrects, where, where we live in a world kind of where I want a God that is just okay with me being me and however I want to be, then that's okay. Then, then these words from Jesus that are, that are very strong and very direct can be hard for some to understand. These woes are indeed judgment. They are indeed rebuke. Even some refer to them as wrath. A.T. Robertson said that this prolonged, sustained denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees is like the rolling thunder of Christ's wrath. And yet, and yet, at the conclusion of all these woes in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus shows us actually the sentiment the, of his heart, what is driving these words. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, in which the Bible says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Ellen White says that when Jesus spoke those words, he was, he was mournful, he was tearful. Jesus' heart, Jesus' words are like thunder rolling. They are intense and they should convict us of sin, but it is out of love that Jesus pronounces these woes. In fact, even the, the word woe encapsulates both the authority of God and the love of God. William Barclay in his commentary wrote this. The Greek word for woe is why. I think I'm saying that right. It is hard to translate for it includes not only wrath, but also sorrow. There is a righteous anger here, but it is the anger of a heart of love broken by stubborn human blindness. There is not only an air of, of denunciation, but there is also an atmosphere of poignant tragedy. Jesus is speaking the denunciation, but, but it comes with tears in his voice as he says these things. Let me illustrate this word woe to you and how I hope you will hear these words throughout this sermon, this, these woe to you, how I hope you will hear these words in your own hearts, in our own hearts. And I bring this example from uh, the pen of the great Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis 
wrote his classic series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Andre, good to see you. Good to have you home. If I don't say something now, it'll be in my brain that he's here home right now. And so he's been, well, I don't know if this is home anymore. You're in Loma Linda now, but home for us. But C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia and uh, The Chronicles of Narnia in the very first book or second book, depending on if you read them by publication date or by, uh, by the, the chronological date, the very first book in my, that I first read of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is a dialogue between some of the characters. And, and if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're watching from someplace in the world and you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia, there are talking animals within the Chronicles of Narnia and they represent different people. So just so you know. And there was a very wise uh, beaver couple Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they are talking to the four children that are the, the, the main characters of the story, the Pavinzi children. And they've come from England into this mystical, this mythical land of Narnia. And she, Miss Beaver, is describing to the children who Aslan is. Aslan is the Christ figure throughout this series that, that C.S. Lewis has created. And she tells the children that Aslan is a lion. And Susan, one of the daughters, replies, oh, is he? Is he safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Ms. Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their, their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy, one of the other children. Safe? said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. But he is good. The woes in this text should be knee-knocking, heart-pounding, convicting, but we should still know that they are from an all-loving, good God. And all of that is summed up in that Greek word for woe. Jesus, the roaring lion, and Jesus, the gentle mother hen. The second danger in this, in this passage is us not listening to the message because Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And, and, and we've done such a good job within Christianity of, of creating a caricature of Pharisees that, that we might miss ourselves in who these people are. We've done a good job of making the, the, the Pharisees these, these bad guys, these religious uh, enemies. And so when we hear a denunciation of them, we don't really listen. Craig Keener, one of my favorite uh, commentators, put it like this. Modern Christian readers often think of Pharisees as hypocrites and hence do not feel threatened when hearing them denounced because none of us think we're hypocrites, of course nor do they recognize the scandal Jesus represented to his religious contemporaries. But the Pharisees' contemporaries thought of them, but the Pharisees' contemporaries thought of them as the most devoted practitioners of religion and of the scribes as Bible experts. One who studies, one who studies Pharisaic ethics will find those ethics generally comparable in many ways to Jesus' teachings. Keener then says this, it is the human heart that Jesus is addressing rather than simply an ethical system that Jesus here confronts. 
In these denunciations of the Pharisees, don't forget this. It is the human heart, ultimately, that Jesus is addressing in these woes. Not some bad guys, religious bad guys that we can ignore and say, well, that is not me. I have a human heart and you have a human heart. So these messages are for us. And now to the very first woe in Jesus's sermon. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13. Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. In each woe, Jesus paints uh, vivid pictures for us. And the first woe paints a picture of the scribes and Pharisees acting as, as I guess we would say, doormen to the kingdom of God. And the Bible tells us that they shut the doors in people's faces. I want you to picture that in your mind. We've all seen images of people having a door slammed in their face. If you're like me and you've watched far too much comedic TV, then you have seen this on many different occasions. We can go all the way back to the honeymooners, right? And slamming the door in someone's face or, or, or to all in the family or the spinoff, the Jeffersons. That's the one that came into my mind. I can see George Jefferson. Remember that goofy white guy that lived close to George Jefferson? And George, the guy would start talking and George would always slam the door in his face. And some of you were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Maybe Seinfeld or Friends or The Office. Every single one of these shows actually has scenes of someone having a door slammed in their face. And in these shows, it's great comedic humor and everybody laughs and chuckles and understands what it's all about. But Jesus does not find it humorous. Jesus finds no humor in it. One commentary said the Greek actually signals that it is the idea that, that it's someone just approaching the door, right about to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and then right at the last minute, the doorman slammed the door in these people's face. How did they do this? Well, I believe the answer is from the text we read last week. Verse four, the Bible tells us they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on others, other people's shoulders. The Pharisees thought, or they came to believe over the scope of history, they came to believe that, that people came to God through an abundance of deeds, through, through a series of regulations that they placed upon themselves or they placed upon others. And thus those deeds and those regulations began to become the focus of these religious leaders. Rather than on their own relationship with Jesus, the Pharisees did not focus or, or on the relationships of, uh, with other people, with God. They, they became more and more obsessed with these, these functions of religion rather than the God of their religion. The getting in for the Pharisees and the scribes and maybe even some of us was more about the acts than the people and where their hearts were and the circumstances of their lives. This still happens today. I know this. I've, I've seen this with my own eyes. Three stories, two that are tied together and maybe you've heard them all. I have been here eight years, so I might've told them to you before, but if you're new, you will have not heard them. I was driving with my friend Aaron down the five, and that's the way we say, describe a freeway in, in California. So if you're ever in California, 
Don't say freeway or highway. Just say 510 to the 101 to the 91 to whatever it may be, and people will know what you're talking about. So we just describe things by, by number. So we were out in California, and I was, driving down, I was driving down the five with my friend Aaron, and my friend Aaron all of a sudden says, Chad, do you, do you know why I've never been baptized? And then he begins to tell me this story. He said, when I was 11 years old, I was at church and I was listening to the pastor and the pastor was preaching a sermon. I didn't normally listen, but that week I was listening and the pastor preached a sermon and I listened and he made an appeal and I went to the front. And after I went to the front, at the end of the service, the pastor came to me and he gave me this big blue book and he said, I want you to go home and work on this blue book in preparation for baptism. And so Aaron said, so I went home and I began to work on this book, but he said, but it felt like homework. I mean, the kid was 11 years old. So he's like, it felt like just doing homework. And so I did a few pages and then I, I put it aside. He told me a few months later, a few months later, I was at church again. And once again, I was happened to be listening to the sermon. Parents, your kids may only listen to us one sermon every few months. So you got to bring them every Sabbath because you don't know which week it's going to be the week that they, that they listen to the, the sermon. Kids, your parents might only listen to one sermon every few months, so you got to bring them every Sabbath because you don't know which one it might be. But he happened to be listening again, and the, and the preacher made an appeal, made a call, and, and he said, I went up again for this appeal to be baptized, and, 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 and the, the, the pastor, at the end of it all, he asked me, he said, you know that book I gave you? And he said, yeah. And he said, um, have you finished it? And he said, no. He said, well, how much have you done of it? He said, well, I've done just a few pages. And he said, the pastor looked at me and said, well, I don't think you're committed enough. You better wait. And he said, and the pastor never talked to me about it again. And he said, that was so discouraging me. It bothered me so much that I, I've never been baptized. Still not baptized today. Keep him in your prayers. He hasn't been connected to the church. He's starting to go a little bit now. So we're praying for that. The pastor didn't think about the relationship, only thought about the task of that book. Slamming the door, in someone's face. Story number two and three connected together. And I know I've shared this one, but in a land far, far away, in a church far, far away, in a time long, long ago, there was a pastor who was studying with a lady and she goes through all the studies and, and this lady, she loves Jesus and she loves the message she's learning about Jesus, but she has a struggle. Anyone else here love Jesus and love the message about Jesus, but ever have a struggle? Anyone? A few of you, just making sure. So she has this struggle. She had a vice, smoking. A smoker of many, many years, but, but, but she's been going through these studies and, and Jesus has been giving her the victory and now she's been cigarette-free for, for months. And the pastor and her decide that she is ready to get baptized. And she was so excited and, and we were excited. This lady loved Jesus. She loved the message she was learning. And the morning of the baptism comes and she is not there to be baptized. And I inquire, why? Where is she? And I'm told, well, this week she had a cigarette. And I dig deeper. I said, well, how do you know this? They said, well, she called and told us what had happened. So then I say again, well, so why isn't she getting baptized? And the pastor says to me, we, this pastor and the associate pastor said, we felt that she needed to wait to make sure she was really committed. I said to them, getting a little bit um, 
uh, heated. I said to them, she has been smoke free, smoke free for months, over a month, for months. Yes, but she had a cigarette this week. And I yelled back at them, one cigarette in the week that she was going to get baptized. Don't you think the devil knew that you would have a problem with this? So now I was putting it a little bit on them and, and uh, they didn't like that too much. I said, she's fighting against flesh and blood and against the, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of darkness. And they said to me, but she needs to be committed. And I yelled again, she confessed on herself. Man, that's the most you can be committed if you confess on yourself. Six months later, the lady's still not baptized. A year later, the lady's still not baptized. A year and a half later, the lady's not even going to church. Slamming the door. When I got my very first pastorate, I was studying with a lady. We'll call her Faye because her name was Faye. So we were, I was studying with Faye. And Faye loved Jesus. And Faye loved the message that she was learning, but she had a struggle. Do, do any of you love Jesus and love the message about Jesus, but have struggles? Okay, just making sure so you can relate to this lady. She loved Jesus and she loved the message about Jesus, but she had this struggle. She was a smoker. And, and, and she had somewhere in her mind developed this idea that she, she had to quit for a certain amount of time before she could get baptized, as in some way to prove her, her love or her loyalty to Jesus. And she would try and, and quit, and she would quit, and she would get very close to that, that time that she had created in her mind, and then she would relapse. And remembering the former experience I just told you about, I asked Faye to do something. My ministerial secretary was here in first service, and, and he Afterwards said I wasn't fired. So if any of you are bothered, just call him. He said it was okay that I did this. But, but I asked Faye, do you have any cigarettes? And she said, yes, I have one more pack. And I said, will you give me the pack? Could I have the pack for them? I said, I'm not going to throw them away. And she gave me the pack. I said, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to think any more about quitting. I want you to just focus on Jesus and focus on the joy of getting baptized. I said, you give me your cigarettes and anytime you want one or think you need one, you just call me up and I'll drive over to your house and I'll bring you a cigarette, no questions asked. So I took those cigarettes, I put those cigarettes in my glove compartment box and I forgot about them there until the moment Someone was in my car and opened up my glove compartment box. <laughs> and there was a nice, almost new pack of Marlboro Reds. But I told this lady, I said, by the time I get your house with your cigarettes, Jesus will have convicted you that you don't want one of these. I said, Jesus will do that for you. So you just focus on Jesus and, and the joy of getting baptized. We set the date for her baptism. She never calls me for one of those cigarettes. She gets baptized. And then one day she calls me. Not to ask for her cigarettes, but to tell me she had slipped up and had a cigarette with one of her friends. And so we prayed about it and 
We ask Jesus for forgiveness because you know that's how we are. Like if you struggle with smoking after you've been baptized, it's okay, we'll keep you in the church. But if you struggle with smoking before you're baptized, we'll, we'll keep you out for a while. We're, we're a little, I don't know how that works. But anyways, but she calls me and tells me, we pray about it, we ask Jesus for forgiveness and, and, uh, and, and for, for her to be strong. One day she comes up to me in church after many months and she tells me how long it has been since she had a cigarette, the longest she's ever gone since she was a teenage girl. I checked on Faye a few years later after I had left that church and Faye was still a faithful member, still not smoking, still struggling, but not smoking. And then I heard not too many years ago that she had got cancer and passed away, but still committed and in love with Jesus. I'm sure at times I've shut the door in people's faces to the kingdom of God, but, but in this case, that previous story had kept me from doing that to her. Kept me from doing that to her. By the way, just so you, none of you are worried, I believe in studying before baptism and I believe in being smoke-free. I've been smoke-free myself for many, many, before I came here, don't worry. Before I became a pastor but I also believe in helping people focus on Jesus and not the task or the action of getting into the kingdom of God. Speaking of Jesus, that brings us to woe number two. Woe number two is found in verse 15. We're gonna do two woes each of these sermon series, each through this sermon series, two woes at a time. And so we have this sermon and then hopefully you'll be back next week where we'll cover two more woes. But verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. That's kind of ironic that, that, they, that they do things to keep people out, but then they travel over land and sea to win converts. Well, who are they trying to win converts to? The Bible tells us, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. According to this woe, these teachers of the law end up making people even more like the devil than they were in the first place. How do they do that? Well, that happens, listen to me, that happens when people that don't understand the gospel try to lead people to God. That's what happens. If you and I don't understand the gospel, eventually we'll try to lead people somewhere, but it won't actually be to God the gospel. It won't be to God. Think about that. That hit my heart when I, when I began to ponder that because I thought of a time in my ministry when, when I was so obsessed with, with baptisms, I wasn't really worried about the after of the discipleship. I was, I was obsessed with, with, oh, people becoming Seventh-day Adventists and I wasn't really worried if, if they really understood who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them. And there was a young man in my church back in California who started coming to, to our church and he sat in the very back and I began to get to know him and he loved, he loved all of our apocalyptic literature. He was obsessed with it. And I would say not, he was obsessed with it and I would say he wasn't very obsessed with Jesus. He wasn't obsessed with what the apocalyptic literature had to say about Jesus. He was just obsessed with the apocalyptic literature. He loved the things, he loved talking about the things like government overreach and the last day persecution and, and Sunday law and, and not being able to use our money because we're, we're Adventists and all the things that, that I do believe will happen. 
But this is what he was excited about in becoming a part of the Adventist church. He, of course, acknowledged Jesus, but, but when he went out and witnessed, he went and told his friends, hey, come join a church that's as crazy as me. They believe all these things. And so I baptized him. I didn't disciple him into loving the gospel. I didn't disciple him into focusing on Jesus as the author and the perfecter and the finishing of his faith. Just a year or so ago, I was talking to my parents who are, know this guy and have remained in contact with him. And the last thing I heard is that he is even more deep in the conspiracy world where there is a boogeyman behind every bush. And, and all I gave him and all we gave him was just more fodder. The Pharisees were more interested in attracting others to be a follower of their brand of religion than to being true followers of God himself. As one commentator wrote, they wanted to enhance the numbers and the prestige of the Pharisee party. Accordingly, they sent out people to secure converts to Pharisaic Judaism through proselyte baptism, circumcision, sacrifice, and adherence to the law. But it was not just the law that they advocated, speaking there of God's law. It was the plethora of Pharisaic additions which they erected as a fence for the law and which they made mandatory for their disciples. Hidebound and legalistic as they were, they turned converts into replicas of themselves. Y'all, are we ever guilty of this in our faith community, in our tribe? Do we ever win people to us and to ideas and to truths and forget somewhere along the way that all of this is just supposed to enhance people's understanding of who Jesus is and what he's about? I know I have. And when we do this, we do more harm than good. We do more harm than good. Jesus said, when you win people to your ideas and your former religion that is not based and founded and beautified in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are making those people more children of hell than they were before. That means people could be one to our community of faith and be children of hell. Think about that. Think about that. So what should be our approach to witnessing? If, if, if we have anything in us like the Pharisees that, that, that we're, we're slamming doors in people's faces rather than thinking about the relationship. We're all about the actions, the deeds, the, the boundaries, the, the governance, the, the guarding of our truths that, that we're slamming doors in people's faces. Or, or, or maybe we're, we're trying to bring people in, we're excited about bringing people in, but what we're bringing them into is the wrong focus and we're never focused on Jesus. What should be our approach to counteracting this? Ellen White wrote in the Review and Herald, January 17, 1893, she wrote this. And it might be a surprise to some. She said, God has jewels in all the churches and it is not for us, listen to this, it is not for us to make sweeping denunciations of the professed religions of the world, but in humility and love present all the truth as it is in Jesus. Let men see piety and devotion. Let them behold, listen to this, Christ's likeness 
of character and they will be drawn to the truth. He who loves God, she who loves God supremely and his or her neighbor as themselves will be a light in the world. Those who have knowledge of the truth are to communicate the same. And then this, they are to lift up Jesus, the world's redeemer. They are to hold, they are to hold forth the word of life. Brothers and sisters, when we fail to focus on Jesus, we keep people out, of, people out of God's kingdom by slamming the door in the face. When we fail to focus on Jesus, we may draw people in, but we're not drawing them into the kingdom of God. We're drawing them into our own church, to our own selves. We are making them more followers of us or more followers of the devil than Jesus himself. Either way, we do more harm than good. There is only one successful way to witness. Ellen White kind of summarized it there, but Jesus said it even in a more succinct way. He said, when I am lifted up, then I will draw all men and all women unto me. So this is my challenge to you, the Spencerville Church and to those that are watching. Go out there to the highways and the byways, to your neighborhoods, to your workplaces, and have people say about you, all those people do is talk about and act like and sing about and smile about and rejoice about this guy, Jesus. And watch as you lift up Jesus, how the world around you will change. Because Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, and only when I'm lifted up will people truly follow me. Lord, I pray for all of us that we will hear these woes and we will be convicted of our own sin. I know my sin that has shut the door on people. I know my sin that has led people to be followers of myself or followers of, a, of an idea or a truth, even a truth that is about you. But at times, Jesus, I've neglected to make sure that people are in love with you. So Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that it may be said of the Spencerville Church, all those people ever do is talk about Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.